0: Well, good afternoon, and thanks so much for joining us as we continue our journey through Matthew's Gospel together. These verses we'll be looking at are familiar verses, so I wanted to start by zooming out and setting the scene for us a bit. Jesus has been causing trouble. At the beginning of chapter 21, he arrived in Jerusalem. Crowds welcomed him in. It was Palm Sunday. but The very first thing Matthew records Jesus doing in town is walking straight into a market that had been set up in the temple courts and shutting it down. Now, don't get the wrong impression. This wasn't some burst of uncontrolled rage. The place that God had given his people to pray was filled instead with people making a tidy sum out of religion. Selling stuff for sacrifices, changing money. So Jesus turns over their market stalls and kicks them out and then gets on with healing the sick there instead. Jesus had been causing trouble. But that wasn't actually what Jesus was most known for. He was known as a religious teacher, a rabbi. And just like the other rabbis of his day, he'd gathered around him a group of disciples who followed his teaching. It was that teaching that was the real problem. The events of the temple were just the tip of the iceberg. And over the next couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel, we see just that. Jesus prefers prayer of a prophet. He prefers to spend time with imperial tax collectors and prostitutes over priests. His story of the future is of a kingdom of God where the rich and the religious are out, but the repentant are in. Now, I wonder how you, how I respond when someone comes along with some new ideas that challenge all the fundamental ways that things are done around us. I don't know, maybe someone comes up with a new policy at work, but it's going to make your job a nightmare. Maybe someone preaches a sermon at church, but if you or maybe your family were to take that sermon seriously, then you'd have to completely reorder how you do your life, how the church does life. Or maybe you hear a new point of view on something in the news, and, and that view, well, if you're honest, it sounds a bit dangerous to you, or maybe just naive. Now, if I'm honest, when that kind of thing comes along, my instinct, quite naturally, is to feel a bit threatened. And after that, I want to start asking questions. Do these ideas hang together? Does whoever's come up with them actually know what they're talking about? Have they thought through about how the things that they're saying interact with all the other things that might be going through your mind that are important to you? And maybe that gives you a feeling for the way some of the religious teachers of Jesus' day might have felt as they heard him teach. Jesus and his teaching were a threat to the ways that their different religious groups wanted to do religion. In a world where everyone did religion and where they were the leaders, that was scary. So in chapter 22, they come along with their questions. In verses 15 to 22 of the chapter, the the issue is which political side Jesus is on. And then in verses 23 to 33, the issue is which theological side he's on. Both encounters with these religious leaders are tests. And in both encounters, Jesus doesn't just pass, he beats the exam. If you look at verse 22, the Pharisees go away amazed. Or in verse 33, the crowds listening in were astonished. And at the start of today's passage, in verse 34... We see that Jesus' previous answer had literally just silenced the Sadducees, one of these other religious groups. And so now it's the Pharisees' turn again. They get their expert Bible scholar to take Jesus on. This would be the kind of person, I don't know, our prime minister would probably love to have joined him if he was doing a press conference about theology. And he comes up, this expert comes up with a different type of test. This question he asked, it's not a trick question like the previous two questions Jesus had been asked have been. This question seems more designed to test whether Jesus really knew his Old Testament law. Now, when I'm interviewing candidates for jobs at work, as I sometimes do, I often have to assess a particular technical skill. And I've got a question that I like to ask them. And just like this Pharisee's question about what the greatest commandment is, my question is quite a specific question. But the question is also about something that's so critical to the skill that I'm trying to see whether this candidate has got, that if they've got that skill at all, then this candidate's going to have some sort of answer. And more importantly, the exact way that they answer the question tells me most of what I need to know about how skilled they are in this area, the different contexts they might have experienced using this skill in, and also really importantly, how deeply they've thought about it. Was is it just something they've just learned or just came up with? And that's what Jesus' answer reveals about his understanding of the law. Jesus has not just read the law. Jesus knows how it all fits together. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, he says. And he's able to connect the revolutionary ideas he's been teaching with the law that the Pharisees' religious power was founded on. It's not surprising That a Jesus who believes that love for God and a selfless love for neighbour summarises the law, it's not surprising that that Jesus is also a Jesus who's got little patience with temple merchants turning a place of prayer into a place of profit. That wouldn't have been a surprise to the Pharisees either. Jesus was just giving exactly the same, exactly the right answer to the exam question. And the Pharisees don't answer him back. Jesus has passed. And if that's not enough to convince this expert... Jesus answers it by quoting the relevant passages completely accurately from memory. Jesus is teaching in lots of different ways. Small ones, perhaps, checks out to this expert. I wonder what each one of us thinks about Jesus teaching. People who've been Christians for decades, as well as people who wouldn't call themselves Christians at all, can find Jesus teaching surprising or even threatening. Sometimes it'll be exactly what you expect, just like this answer that Jesus gives. At other times, you'll find that Jesus turns the tables on you, that he asks awkward questions that challenge the way that we think, the way that we love, the way that we do life. But wherever you're at, then let me reassure you with a couple of things. Firstly, Jesus' claims about who God is and who he is, who we are, how the world works, well, those claims do have depth and they can stand up to scrutiny. That's what this string of religious teachers lining up to ask Jesus hard questions found. Now, obviously, they were asking a load of questions that might not be at the top of most of our lists to ask Jesus. But Jesus' answers show something deeper than that. They say something about Jesus' teaching itself. Jesus' teaching hangs together. It's thought through. Jesus' teaching has got enough depth to it that countless Christian thinkers from a huge range of traditions and cultures have found it deeply satisfying ever since. Jesus teaching has got enough weight to be an incredible force for good. It has done throughout history, but sadly it's also, far too often been used for the exact opposite. But you can't deny that there's something in it. And whatever we make of it, we can't take it lightly. So that's one thing that should reassure us. Here's another. Secondly, at the heart of Jesus' teaching is love. The greatest of all possible loves, in fact, a love for God that flows out into a love for others. It's a love that is so great that it's all-encompassing. That's reassuring, but here's the catch. A love that that is that great leaves no room for a lack of love. And that's one of the things that makes encountering Jesus so challenging. Loving Jesus' way means not just loving God and each other in ways that we want to, but loving in ways that completely reorder the way that we think and feel and act. That kind of love fundamentally reorders our souls. It reorders who we are. That can be scary, but it is good. And the teaching that leads to that hangs together. Now, if you'd like to explore that further then um, we're very conscious that watching this kind of video where we can't really talk about it isn't necessarily the best way to do that but if that is you and you'd like to get your head around Jesus's teaching for yourself then do go to allsouls.org forward slash explore where you'll find a whole range of ways to get that conversation started but let's get back to our passage Jesus doesn't leave things there moving on to verse 42 Jesus asks the Pharisees a question He's not actually fighting back in the debate, although if Jesus had wanted to do that, then he couldn't have been more successful. If you look down to verse 46, you see that by the end of this, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. What Jesus is actually doing here, though, is making a point that they need to hear. Jesus' question is about whose son the Messiah is. Now, the Messiah was a promised future king who Old Testament prophets had said would come and set things to right. Quite literally, that word means anointed one, king. Now, in verse 42, the Pharisees answer Jesus' question quite correctly, that the Messiah would be the son of David, descended from ancient Israel's greatest king from a thousand years or so ago. But then Jesus takes them in this quote that he gives back to Psalm 110. David, King David, is writing, and in his song, his psalm, there's three different lords. There was David, the king, he was lord well, Lord number one anyway, but there were two other lords. There was the Lord at the beginning of the verse Jesus quoted. It's clear that that Lord is God. But then there's a third Lord, the my Lord that God is speaking to. He's not David because he's David's Lord, but somehow also God's able to speak to him. So who is he? Who was this Lord that David answered to, but who wasn't the Lord at the beginning of the psalm? Well, the Pharisees would have understood that that third Lord was the Messiah. Later on in the psalm, this third Lord, the Messiah, goes on to do all the kinds of things that the Messiah was supposed to do. But here's the confusing thing. Why didn't David just write the Lord says to my son? That would have made much more sense to him. Instead of saying that, why does he make everything more confusing than it needs to be and write the Lord says to my Lord? Or as Jesus puts his question in verse 45, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? In fact, Jesus' original question gave the Pharisees a clue as to the answer to his question. Whose son is he? Whose son is he? Whose son is this Lord of David? The obvious answer that they got right was that he was the son of David, but Jesus is implying that that answer didn't really get to the bottom of it. There weren't actually many options other than the son of David. Abraham, maybe? Levi? A minor local celebrity? I mean, none of them were very... Good options for various reasons, some obvious, some less obvious. There was actually only really one other option. Here's how the character of the Messiah is first introduced in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 2, near the beginning of Psalm 2, if you want to look it up. Here's how it starts, these verses. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, as God, you are my son, Today I have become your father. Here's what Jesus is strongly implying with his question. He's implying that he's the son of God. Now, if you've been in church circles for some time at all, you'll have heard that term um, used. But um, what we need to do is go right back to what it meant uh, in Jesus's time. If you were a king in the ancient world, then it was very convenient if you were also the son of a God. And if you're the son of a God and your enemy's kings aren't the son of a God, then that's even better. In fact, an emperor in Rome had only recently claimed that he was the son of God, that he was not just king, but the king of kings. Here's the problem, though, that those sons of God had. Whether they were executed or assassinated or died in battle or died in their beds, all those sons of God died and their claims to divinity were no more. So what makes Jesus' Jesus' claim any different? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us now. We'll hear the rest of that story over the next few Thursday lunchtimes. But let me pick out some of the key points. Jesus was executed on a cross because he claimed to be the son of God. Jesus was mocked as he died on that cross, precisely because if he really were the son of God, God wouldn't just let him die. Jesus died in such an extraordinary way that his executioner, who was a Roman centurion who was supposed to be loyal to his Caesar, his son of God, remember? Jesus died in such a way that that centurion said in front of everyone who was watching, surely this man was the son of God. What if, unlike all those other sons of God, this son of God despite everything that was being said about him around him, didn't stay dead. Because if that were true, then this son of God wouldn't just be a teacher. He wouldn't even just be a great teacher. He would be the teacher. Here's what he tells his disciples just a few verses later. You're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. When Jesus teaches, he is king. When Jesus teaches, he is the king. Jesus teaches as the king of kings. He teaches as the son of God. Now, to come back to this conversation with the Pharisees where he's implying that he's the son of God, why does he want the Pharisees to know that? Well, the way that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders in this chapter have treated Jesus is as if he were a student who needed to pass his entrance exam so that he can learn at their feet, instead of treating him as if he were the son of God, the teacher. They're asking him questions to test whether he knows the answers. What they really should be doing is answering his questions, being his students, learning from him. So as I close, Why don't we take a moment to look at ourselves? Christians today too might have questions for Jesus, or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, but you've got questions about being what being a Christian might mean, or about Jesus for yourself. Let's bring some of the questions that maybe we've been thinking about recently to mind. What do our questions say about who we think Jesus really is? I know I've asked a lot of Pharisee-type questions in my time. Questions that are really all about checking that Jesus agrees with me. Jesus, you do think it's okay if I believe this, don't you? Jesus, you don't actually mean I have to change this about my life, do you? And those of us who are Christians and part of churches and denominations and follow celebrity Christians on social media need to be honest with ourselves. Just like those Pharisees in Jesus' day, we want to check whether Jesus agrees with our particular group quite a lot of the time. Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily have a problem with Bible teachers and church leaders. Elsewhere in the New Testament, they're called gifts from God. But if he is the son of God, if he is the teacher, then what that means is that no one else is the teacher, not the teacher with a capital T. We can't claim that Jesus is the son of God, but then put our favorite leader or our denomination or or a lack of denomination or our statement of faith on his throne. We can't put our church's way of doing things or our family's way of doing things or the way that we've always understood things on his throne. If Jesus is the teacher, he's the son of God. He's the king of kings. He's the teacher, the teacher. And any other great Christian teacher is just his student. Now, if you're not a Christian right now, thanks so much for taking an interest on a Thursday lunchtime or whenever you're watching this. And sadly, this YouTube version of myself has no way to tell what you're thinking about all this. Uh, I'd love to chat about it. But let me leave you with this thought as you look in on us here at All Souls Church. Now, church at its best can be absolutely wonderful. It can be full of people who are loving God and loving each other with all that they are. But church can also be full of Pharisees. We're a bunch of people with a great God who want what is right and what is good. But the truth is that we're also a bunch of failures who forget that we're supposed to be being taught by Jesus, not the other way round, putting him to the test. And when that happens, church can get ugly. It can become filled with little cliques fighting with each other over which leader or tradition or subculture to follow. You might have... Heard of church life being like that, and at best that kind of behavior is unhealthy, and um, we need to be real about what's going on in the world. At It's absolute worst, that kind of behavior can turn into abuse. So where does that leave us? As you look into things, start with Jesus. He is the teacher. All other teachers need to listen to him. Find out more about Jesus. Find out more about what his teaching had to say. And see if you agree with the Pharisees that Jesus' teaching hangs together. Read the Gospels, read the accounts of his death and resurrection. See if you agree with that centurion when he said, as Jesus died, surely this man is the Son of God. Because if that claim is true, that Jesus is the Son of God, then church, despite all of its inadequacies, despite all of its outright failures, if that claim is true, church is where you'll find other people who at least some of the time, are asking the right questions and being changed as they listen to Jesus. Thanks for listening.